Hello and welcome to the Agios Dose. My name is Bill Dijkstra. The date today is June 21st, and we commemorate St. Julian of Tarsus. So today, saint, like many other saints over the past few months, Julian is brought to you in part by the Diocletian persecution. Now, I know I have spoken about this era a few times, and I'm having some difficulty getting a lot of mileage out of this persecution and talking about this persecution again and again and again. So I thought a good idea would be to just quote Eusebius's history on this era. Uh, this podcast is going to seem today a little unbalanced um, with the content we're going to go over through the persecution um, in contrast with Julian's story itself, as it is quite brief. So here is Eusebius's account of the Diocletian persecution. How great, how unique were the honor and liberty to which before the persecution of my time were granted by all men, Greeks and non-Greeks alike, to the message given through Christ to the world of true reverence for God of the universe. It is beyond me to describe it as it deserves. Witness the goodwill so often showed by potentates to our people. They even put into their hands the government of the provinces, releasing them from the agonizing question of sacrificing in view of the friendliness with which they regard their teaching. What need I say about those in imperial palaces and about the supreme rulers? Did they not permit the members of their households, consorts, children, and servants to embrace bodily before their eyes the divine message and way of life, hardly minding even if they boasted of the liberty granted to the faith? Did they not hold them in special esteem and favor them more than their fellow servants? I might instance the famous Dorotheos, the most devoted and loyal of the servants, and on that account much more honored than the holders of offices of governorship. With him I couple the celebrated Gorgonius, and all who, because of God's word, were held in the same honor as these two. And what approbation the rulers in every church unmistakably won from all the procurators and governors. How could one describe those mass meetings, those enormous gatherings in every city, and the remarkable congregations and places of worship? No longer satisfied with the old buildings, they raised from the foundations in all the cities, churches, spacious and plain. These things went forward with the times and expanded at a daily increasing rate, so that no envy stopped them, nor could any evil spirit bewitch them to check them by means of human schemes, as long as the divine and heavenly hand sheltered and protected its own people as being worthy. But increasing freedom transformed our character to arrogance and sloth. We began envying and abusing each other, cutting our own throats, as occasion offered, with weapons of sharp-edged words, rulers hurled themselves at rulers, and laymen waged party fights against laymen, and unspeakable hypocrisy and dissimulation were carried to the limit of wickedness. At last, while the gatherings were still crowded, divine judgment, with its wanted mercy, gently and gradually began to order things its own way, and with the Christians in the army, the persecution began. But alas, realizing nothing, we made not the slightest effort to render the deity kindly and propitious. 
and as if we had not been a lot of atheists, we imagined that our doings went unnoticed and unregarded, and went from wickedness to wickedness. Those of us who were supposed to be pastors cast off the restraining influence of the fear of God and quarreled heatedly with each other, engaging solely in swelling the disputes, threats, envy, and mutual hostility and hate, frantically demanding the despotic power they coveted. Then, then it was that in accordance with the words of Jeremiah, The Lord, in his anger, covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud, and cast down from heaven the glory of Israel. He remembered not the footstool of his feet in the day of his anger, but the Lord also drowned in the sea all the beauty of Israel, and broke down all his fences. So also, as he foretold in the Psalms, he overthrew the covenant of his bondservant, and profaned to the ground, through the destruction of the churches, his sanctuary, and broke down all his fences. He made his strongholds cowardice. All that passed by the way despoiled the multitudes of the people. Moreover, he became a reproach to his neighbors." For he exalted the right hand of his enemies, and turned back the aid of his sword, and did not assist him in the war. But he also cut him off from cleansing, and threw down his throne to the ground, and shortened the days of his time, and finally covered him with shame. Everything indeed has been fulfilled in my time. I saw with my own eyes the places of worship thrown down from top to bottom to their very foundations, the inspired holy scriptures committed to the flames in the middle of the public squares, and the pastors of the churches hiding disgracefully in one place or another, while others suffered the indignity of being held up to ridicule by their enemies, a reminder of another prophetic saying. For contempt was poured on rulers, and he made them wander in a trackless land where there is no road. But it is not for me to describe their wretched misfortunes in the event, nor is it my business to leave on record their quarrels and inhumanity to each other before the persecutions, so I have made up my mind to relate no more about them than enough to justify the divine judgment." I am determined, therefore, to say nothing even about those who have been tempted by the persecution or have made complete shipwreck of their salvation and their own accord flung themselves into the depths of the stormy sea. I shall include in all in my overall account only those things by which first we ourselves, then later generations, may benefit. Let me therefore proceed from this point to describe in outline the hallowed ordeal of the martyrs of God's word. It was the nineteenth year of Diocletian's reign, and the month of Distress, called March by the Romans, and the festival of the Savior's Passion was approaching, when an imperial decree was published everywhere, ordering that churches to be razed to the ground, and the scriptures destroyed by fire, and giving notice that those in places of honor would lose their places, and domestic staff, if they continued to profess Christianity, would be deprived of their liberty." Such was the first edict against us. Soon afterwards, another edict arrived in rapid succession, 
ordering that the presidents of the churches in every place should all be committed to prison and then coerced by every possible means into offering sacrifice. Then, then it was that many rulers of the churches bore up heroically under horrible torments an object lesson in the endurance of fearful ordeals, while countless others, their souls already numbered with cowardice, promptly succumbed to the first onslaught. Of the rest, each was subjected to a series of different tortures, one flogged unmercifully with a whip, another racked and scraped beyond endurance, so that the lives of some came to a most miserable end. But different people came through the ordeal very differently. One man would force would be forcibly propelled by others and brought to the disgusting, unholy sacrifices and dismissed as if he had sacrificed, even if he had done no such thing. Another who had not even approached any abomination, much less touched it, but was said by others to have sacrificed, would go away without attempting to repudiate the baseless charge. Another would be picked up half dead and thrown away as if already a corpse, and again a man lying on the ground might be dragged a long way by his feet, though induded among the willing sacrificers. One man would announce at the top of his voice his determination not to sacrifice. Another would shout that he was a Christian, exulting in the confession of the Savior's name, while yet another insisted that he had never sacrificed and never would. These were struck on the mouth and silenced by the for- a formidable body of soldiers lined up for the purpose. Their faces and cheeks were battered and they were forcibly removed. It was the one object in life of the enemies of true religion to gain credit for having finished the job. But no such methods could enable them to dispose of the holy martyrs. What could I say that would do full justice to them? I could tell of thousands who showed magnificent enthusiasm for the worship of the God of the universe, not only from the beginning of the general persecution, but much earlier, when peace was still secure. For at long last, the one who had received the authority was, as it were, awakening from the deepest sleep after making attempts, as yet secret and surreptitious, against the churches, in the interval that followed Decius and Valinian, he did not make his preparations all at once for the war against us, but for the time being took action only against members of the legions. In this way, he thought that the rest would easily be mastered if he joined battle with these and emerged victorious. Now could be seen large numbers of serving soldiers most happy to embrace civic life in order to avoid having to repudiate their loyalty to the architect of the universe. The commander-in-chief, whoever he was, was now first setting about persecuting the soldiery, classifying and sorting those serving in the legions and allowing them to choose either to obey orders and retain their present rank or alternatively to be stripped of it as if they disobeyed the enactment. 
But a great many soldiers of Christ's kingdom, without hesitation or question, chose to confess him rather than cling to the outward glory and prosperity they enjoyed. Already here and there, one or two of them were suffering not only loss of position, but even death as the reward for their unshakable devotion. For the time being, the man behind the plot was acting cautiously and going as far as bloodshed in a few cases only. He was apparently afraid of the number of believers and shrank from launching out into war with them all at once. But when he stripped more thoroughly for battle, words are inadequate to depict the host of God's noble martyrs, whom the people of every city and every region were privileged to see with their own eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that sounded like some of the commentary we hear from from witnesses to the Second World War, to the atrocities that they saw. Or to any atrocity, really, but that's the one that sticks out in mind when we watch those documentaries of the veterans and the people who were, uh, were uh, bystanders to the violence. That's what it sounded like to me. Anyways, now we're going to talk about uh, today's saint, the martyr Julian, who died within this persecution. Julian was born in Asia Minor. His father was a pagan senator, yet his mother was a Christian. When his father died, the family moved from the Roman province of Sicilia and moved to Tarsus. He was a young man, 18 years old, when Diocletian's persecution came into full swing. The youth was brought before the governor, Marcarian, and demanded, and he demanded the governor, demanded him to pay tribute to the gods. Julian refused. Julian was then brought to each city of the province, enduring tortures in each place for an entire year. As a personal anecdote, I can imagine the saint's sufferings sanctified the region. He was eventually placed into prison in Aegea. His mother begged the governor to allow her to go see him so she can convince him to offer sacrifice to the idols. She spent three days with him, and, instead of goading him to offer sacrifice, she encouraged him to hold fast and face his torturers with courage for God. One thing I take issue with in the story is that his mother, who is nameless, ought to be considered a saint, because that is a good mother right there. So often we are given this image of motherhood and the love of a mother who loves her child no matter what they might do. This is better. A mother who instructs her son to remain faithful to the highest good, to God, no matter the circumstances, no matter the cost. But let's continue. The two were brought before the governor again. It was believed that his mother was going to be successful in seducing her son into pagan worship. However, before her son could say anything... She, thunderously, proclaimed her fidelity to Jesus and denounced the Satanism of Roman worship. Immediately, the governor had her feet cut off, and her son was thrown into a burlap sack full of scorpions and snakes and tossed into the ocean. His body was later found in Alexandria and reposed in Antioch. So, that's the story of St. Julian. Thank you very much for listening. This has been your Daily Dose of Agios. St. Julian of Tarsus and his mother, pray for us.